Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. Welcome to Space 3D. This episode is the conclusion of our discussion with David Chudwin, author of I Was a Teenage Space Reporter. In this episode, David describes post-Apollo 11 launch activities at Cape Canaveral, his return to his summer job, witnessing the Apollo 11 parade in downtown Chicago, and some other miscellaneous tidbits related to his book and longtime interests in spaceflight. We begin with a question by co-host Emily Carney. Her question actually was that uh, prior to the uh, seeing the launch, you had actually heard Jim McDivitt and Ed White speak. She was curious if you could comment a little bit on what Ed, you know, what was Ed White like? You know, because we, you know, he's some of the for- forgotten astronauts. I was glad to see, you know, in First Man that we actually got to, to see uh, Ed White um, and that brought him alive. But um curious about your thoughts about, about uh, actually seeing him speak and, you know, any thoughts about that? Well, I just heard him speak one time. This was after the Gemini 4 flight. Yeah that uh, Jim McDivitt and Ed White did, during which he took the first U.S. EVA, the first U.S. spacewalk. Uh, And afterwards, they came to Chicago uh, for a ticker tape parade. Uh, And um, one of the events that was planned for them was a uh, question-and-answer session with high school students. Um, I was in high school then, uh, and my friend Marv and I were able to get the tickets from our school to go to this event. And we got there earlier and got to one of the uh, close-up rows. And when uh, they did question and answer, we were just a few feet away uh, from uh, McDivitt and White, who had uh, portable microphones with them. Mm. We didn't get to ask them a question, but we were able to photograph them and, and hear them. Um, my impression of the time was that uh, um, Ed White was tall for an astronaut. Uh, he was also very handsome. Uh, and... Um, both McDivitt and White were very pale, uh, apparently from having, you know, been in spacecraft simulators for days on end, you know, before the flight. Mm. But they both looked pale. Uh, and um, they were both uh, very good at answering questions. They gave very good uh, answers to the questions. That's interesting that you commented on this, that they were pale. Um, I don't think I've ever heard that, you know, co- a comment about you know, someone's physical appearance in that way, you know, than the astronauts. And also uh, McDivitt looked old in the sense that uh, he was balding and had uh, um, had uh, salt and pepper uh, hair with, with gray, uh, which was, um, you know, for someone in their 30s, uh, he looked older than that. Premature gray, huh? <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. So you, you got to actually see that at the Cape. Did you return home before they made it back to Earth then? No, um, I went back. I had to get back to my job in Chicago. And so I went back um, the day that they lifted off from the moon. So um, curious. So you get back there, finish out the rest of the summer. What was the reaction of your, your classmates or your fellow newspaper 
reporters um, at, you know, when you got back to school? Were they like, wow, that actually that was pretty cool what you did? Or were they still kind of like, eh, whatever, you know? Well, the, the, peop- the, the people at the Daily were very whatever because, uh, again, space flight was not important to them. But, uh, you know, other classmates of mine, especially those who were like in engineering and everything, uh, you know, couldn't believe it. But, you know, even before we got to school, though, we got another chance to see the Apollo 11 crew. Uh, they were in quarantine uh, for a while to prevent any moon organisms from attacking the Earth. Now, that seems ridiculous now, uh, but, but at the time they felt it necessary. Uh, when they landed, uh, they were put in these biological isolation garments, uh, these uh, suits, uh, and then put aboard a uh, trailer uh, and aboard the USS Hornet. And the trailer was then flown to Houston, and they were put in quarantine. Uh, they came out of quarantine the middle of August, and on August 13th, they started on a round of celebrations and parades. Uh, the morning of August 13th, they were in New York City for a tape, ticker tape parade. August 13th in the afternoon, they came to Chicago, mm. and I saw the crew again uh, during that parade. Uh, I pulled out my Apollo 11 press pass and ran along their car for a while wow. um, until a policeman threatened to arrest me. Uh, and took a lot of pictures. And I have and, a press pass. Exactly. All right, I'm a member of the press. He said, get back to the side block or else. Uh, and, but I have some pictures in the book uh, of them during this uh, parade in Chicago, and over a million people uh, welcome them. And, in fact, in the documentary Apollo 11, they show uh, scenes from, from the parade in Chicago, which was really spectacular. Yeah. What what route? I'm just curious, you know, having recently moved from there, I'm just curious, did it go down Michigan Avenue or where was the parade route? Yeah, it's the, the parade started off at the north end of Michigan Avenue near the Drake Hotel. Okay. And they were in they were in the limousines there. Um, the crew three crew member were in one limousine, their wives were in another limousine, uh, other members of their family were in another limousine. Uh, the astronaut and wives were in open cars. Uh, so it gradually went down Michigan Avenue going south and then turned down to Wacker Avenue and then went up State Street past the Marshall Fields building uh, and then went on to LaSalle Street and went south on LaSalle Street. And this is, was like a, a canyon of uh, ticker tape going down LaSalle Street. Gotcha. Okay. So kind of sort of went around, I guess, the loop in a way. Right. Got it. And, and again, it was estimated at least a million people were there. Wow. Wow. That's impressive. I didn't realize that they had the ticker tape in New York, and then they flew and had another ticker tape parade the same day. I... And then they had another event that evening in Los Angeles. Uh, yeah, they when... crossed the country in one day. I remember right. reading that. Right. And in Los Angeles, uh, there was um, also a, a brief parade, uh, not as huge as the ones in New York or Chicago, but then President Nixon held a special dinner uh, in their honor and gave them all the Presidential Medal of Freedom uh, that evening of August 13th. Wow, I never knew that one. Wow, very interesting. So um, did you continue to do any reporting on the space program through college? Yes, I, I did. Uh, again, I was kind of the unofficial uh, space reporter for the Michigan Daily. For example, the Apollo 15 crew all had ties to University of Michigan. Uh, um, Dave Scott was there his freshman year of college before going to the West Point. Um, 
Al Warden uh, went to undergraduate there. Jim Irwin got a master's degree. So it was kind of an all-University of Michigan crew. So after Apollo 15, they came uh, to the University of Michigan and had a um, series of events there. And I was able to uh, meet them at a small reception, although Al Warden doesn't remember meeting me <laughs> that many years ago. But he met the hundreds yeah, of people. Yeah, we, we got to forgive him on that. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so I wrote about the space program until, um, you know, until I graduated. Uh, and then through the years, I had written a number of different things about my experiences uh, for a hobby publication called The Astrophile. Um, I wrote an article about this for Spaceflight, uh, the Journal of the British uh, Interplanetary Society. Then five years ago, 2014, I realized I had all these extensive photographs of Apollo 11. So I did a series of uh, Facebook posts, uh, 74 different daily Facebook posts, uh, kind of telling the story through the pictures. And after that, uh, several people said to me, you've got a book there. Why don't you write a book? Wow. So you have Facebook to thank for the book. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so I started little did I realize that it would take, you know, four years for the project, uh, that it would take two and a half years to actually write it, and that it would take months to find an agent, a publisher, uh, go through the editorial process. Uh, and I was all very intent on trying to have this come out before the 50th anniversary uh, in July of this year. Yeah, well, you certainly lucked out with that. That's been great. How's the reception to the book been so far? Well, again, um, it was it was. I have a contract with a small publisher that's uh, actually located in England. Um, I did not self-publish the book; it's with the actual publisher, and uh, they have been doing the best they can in terms of book placement and PR. Uh, the hardest thing for a first-time author and a small publisher is to actually get their books physically into bookstores. Uh, in addition to using online booksellers like Amazon or Barnes & Noble, uh, Target, uh, Walmart, places like that. Uh, and so I'm pleased to report that the book is actually in a number of the Barnes & Noble stores uh, in some cities around the country. It's in a lot of the stores physically here in the Chicago area. Uh, and they're in a few in New York City, uh, in uh, Florida, uh, and some other places as well. Um, it was just published last week in England, and I found out that it's in four um, of the Foils bookstores in London and Birmingham, actually physically there. Oh, great. Yeah. Oh, excellent. Again, the, the people that have read it have been uh, very positive. Um, the, you know, the reviews are just starting to come in, but, for example, on Amazon, um, all six reviewers rated it at five stars, which is the best rating. Awesome. So do you have another book uh, that a book uh, that you're preparing for? First, I want to survive this book. <laughs> <laughs> and because there's not only the publicity about, um, you know, the publication of it, uh, but there will be another round of publicity uh, around the, the 50th anniversary in July. So I have kind of two opportunities to get the book out to people. Right. Uh, I've been having a lot of fun doing um, radio interviews uh, and podcast interviews uh, to kind of tell people the story. I, I really wrote the book for two audiences. One is people, uh, baby boomers my own age, who uh, this 
brings back a lot of nostalgia about where they were and what they were doing in July 1969. But I especially wrote it for young people of today uh, to let them know what's going to be happening in space in, in the next 50 years. Uh, and so the last third of the book is all about uh, the, our future in space. Yeah. No, I think I think that's terrific. Um, do have another question for you. Just curious. Um, and this actually comes from Emily as well. Um, she was wondering, out of all of the space reporters of that era that covered Apollo 11, um, were there any that particularly inspired you? And uh, did you have a favorite? Well, I was partial to Walter Cronkite. Uh, and in fact, it was funny because one of the days before the launch, we stopped by the Cape Kennedy Hilton and just by happenstance walked by the pool and we saw Walter Cronkite there holding court in a lounge chair at the pool with all these people around him. But um, I, I admired uh, Cronkite's uh, enthusiasm. I admired uh, the amount of time and effort he'd put into studying it. I mean, he really knew his stuff in terms of the, the space program. Yeah. Wasn't there, um, am I vaguely remembering, wasn't there talk at some point about sending like a journalist into space that early on and there were overtures about would Cronkite be one of those people or something? Right, yeah, there was some talk of that, but I mean, that wasn't really serious until um, until the shuttle program. And uh, at, at that point, uh, what, what uh, killed that whole idea was the Challenger accident. Yeah. So this journalist in space competition that NASA had was uh, was uh, abolished after the Challenger accident because of the realization of the risk of space travel. Got it. Very interesting. Um, Tom, I don't know if you have any, any questions. I've been sort of hogging the interview. Have you seen a change in uh, coverage? It, I know media has changed, you know, news coverage in general has changed, but I, I don't know if – I haven't seen as much change in the science reporting. How about you? Well, I, I think that um, – Reporting overall of science is pretty bad, uh, and uh, yes. I think that that the coverage of the Apollo missions, though, that there were a number of uh, journalists, um, such as Walter Cronkite, Jules Bergman, Frank Reynolds, uh, who really took it seriously and learned a lot about it, uh, rather than the kind of slipshod journalism we see now. Uh, you know, I cringe at some of the scientific journalism. Yeah, what I think is going on is it's accepted that you don't know everything about science while you're reporting on it. Meanwhile, if you're talking about some sort of uh, foreign policy or something, you're supposed to know what you're talking about. But science, it's okay if you don't know. Right. And so some of the reporting on uh, the space program has been good. Um, others of it is just terrible. Uh, and uh, I think that um, you know, the journalists have a responsibility to be as accurate as possible. And it's very disappointing, both in scientific journalism and other aspects of journalism, that that's less the case now than it was years ago. Yeah. Was it uh, was it kind of a letdown to go from like watching the, the pinnacle of spaceflight and to seeing where things kind of are to, you know are today? I mean, you know, do you are you more encouraged today than you have been in the past, or? You know, just kind of curious, or, or did your medical practice kind of distract you from sort of thinking about that? No, um, I, the, um, seeing the Apollo 11 launch was a life-changing experience for me, and I became kind of obsessed with space and have followed it very closely over the last uh, 50 years and, and more. 
Uh, and there was a period where I was somewhat pessimistic, but I'm very optimistic now. I'm very optimistic now about the future of the, the space program. And that's for two reasons. Number one is international involvement in the International Space Station, where it's paying some of the costs and providing some of the equipment, and also in future projects such as the Gateway, which is proposed to go in lunar orbit, uh, being with modules being uh, provided by uh, Europe uh, and by other space entities. And the second reason I'm optimistic is the billions of dollars that are being spent by Internet billionaires uh, on private space companies. For example, just Bezos, who uh, founded Amazon, uh, is reported to be spending a billion dollars a year of his own money uh, on Blue Origin, which will likely have the first space tourists within the next year or so. Uh, the other prime example of that is uh, SpaceX with Elon Musk, uh, who was one of the founders of PayPal. Uh, he's put significant amounts of his own money uh, into uh, SpaceX, and uh, it's made tremendous accomplishments in terms of bringing down the space, the cost of space launches by the concept of reusing rockets. Yeah, when I was going to school, I was taught that was impossible. Right. And the, um, you know, the, the analogy is, is if you flew from New York to Seattle, you know, on a, on a Boeing 747 jet, you know, would you fly there just once and then dump the aircraft into the ocean? No, of course you wouldn't. You would reuse it. And so um, Musk has proven that that is possible. And I think he... Um, you know, he's not a perfect person, but I think he's a tremendous space visionary and that these private companies are prodding NASA to get out of its rut. Uh, now, part of that is a whole budget situation. Uh, the current NASA budget is approximately $20 billion a year. Uh, if you look at the NASA budget during the height of Apollo in 1966, um, it's the equivalent in constant dollars of $45 billion a year in 1966, so that we're spending less than half of what we were at the height of Apollo on space. You know, there's a saying, no bucks, no Buck Rogers. If you don't have the money, you're not going to have the space projects. And NASA has been hampered by a, a steady budget. Now, $20 billion is a lot of money. There's no doubt about it. But, uh, again, it's less than half of what we were spending on space during Apollo. And we're, I'm hoping that the international partners and the commercial companies will will take up some of the slack. Yeah, and the whole uh, the whole political game of having to build something in every uh, in every congressional district. That's one thing that our uh, the private spaceflight operators aren't hampered by. Right. There's a lot of politics. I mean, the prime example of that is a so-called space launch system, which is the heavy lift rocket that's supposed to replace the Saturn V. The costs on this have been going up, and the, the first flight of it keeps getting delayed by months and months and months. Um, and the, the joking name for it is instead of space launch system, that it's the Senate launch system because senators from certain states have in, in insisted on that it, that it be used. And while I think a heavy launch rocket like that is necessary, uh, the success of other not quite as – uh, heavy launchers such as the um, Falcon Heavy, uh, you know, raise a question about whether we should continue to spend money on SLS or not. Yeah. 
Oh, don't don't say that to certain senators. Right. <laughs> so with the proceeds of all the money you're going to make off the sales of your book, are you going to invest in a, in a space flight? Would you want to go into space? Listen, I'll be lucky to make even on this proposition. Um, the economics of the book publishing industry are terrible, and uh, there are very few science writers who can actually make a living uh, doing doing this. Uh, I'm glad I have my day, day job as a physician, uh, which has supported me while I've uh, put all these hundreds of hours into it. Um, my daughter actually wrote a, a fiction book, and I think she calculated that she received about 10 cents an hour to write it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really a shame. Well, I'm certainly glad that you wrote this book. Um, I, I think it's a wonderful addition to particularly this this year, you know, celebrating the 50th anniversary of the first landing. So um, I, I want to thank you for, for making that contribution. And, um, you know, I don't know, Tom, if you have any additional questions. Otherwise, I think I've, I'm all questioned out. Yeah. No, it was great talking with you, David. I uh, hope to meet you face-to-face sometime. Well, I, I've enjoyed it, and uh, uh, I hope you enjoy reading it, and I hope everybody also enjoys the pictures. Uh, because that's one of the unique elements of this book is that uh, I've, we've got 85 illustrations in the book, and uh, a lot of them are unique pictures that I personally took at the time. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Space 3D. We'll be back soon with one more episode to round out this second season of our podcast. For Emily Carney and Tom Hill, this is Eleanor Rangers for Space 3D.